0: You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Micah Chapter five. We're looking at verses two to five. This is a series that we've entitled Christ Before Christmas. And so what we're going to be doing over the next three Sundays is we'll be looking at three Old Testament passages that predict the coming of Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years before Mary gave birth to him. And I've already said what our text is today, uh, Micah 5, verses 2 to 5. It's probably a passage that is familiar to at least some of you because it is an Old Testament text that get, gets read at this time of, of year. But before going there, let's just do some background because we're dropping in out of the middle of a, a book, and I think it's important for us to have at least some context, who is Micah? Well, Micah is an Old Testament prophet. You probably know that. Um, He's grouped with what is called, I, I referred to this last week, the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets. Their books are packed into the last 12 books of the Old Testament. There are five major prophets, not minor or major, as I mentioned last week, in importance, but because of the size of the books. Uh, that they are. His prophetic ministry took place, best as we can figure, between 730 and 690 BC, which is important to note. So what we're going to read here in this prophecy of Micah, or at least this one section, was 700 years in the making before it was fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Micah was a colleague of Isaiah, a major prophet, Hosea, another minor prophet, but their calls were the same. They were called by God to tell the people of God who weren't walking with God to repent of their evil and injustice. That's part of what this book is about. And called to return to God and do what was right and be restored to him. And Micah was a faithful prophet. He's a good guy. In spite of the dangers that came with it. And there were dangers. There's a, there's a reason why I called one of my sons Micah because I don't think there's anything more admirable in this life in my eyes than proclaiming what God has told you to proclaim, regardless of the consequences. The name Micah uh, means something like, who is like Yahweh, which actually shows up in the last couple of verses in the book. Uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Micah writes, Who is a God like you? There's the name pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in it. It's a a beautiful verse and it sums up one of the major themes that weaves its way through this letter, this call to return and receive forgiveness and restoration that God wants to pour out on you. But, Another theme that weaves its way throughout this book is God's judgment against sin and injustice. It pops up again and again. Here's a summary of that part of the message. In Micah chapter 2, we read, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. In other words, those who sit around thinking about the things that they can do in the morning that are evil and unjust. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Sounds terrible. And it was. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Tough message. That's why it was tough to be a faithful prophet. That's why it was dangerous. It's why, as we saw last week, that they killed the prophets because they didn't like a message like this. They liked peace and safety messages, happy clappy messages. But interwoven with this difficulty of, of the message that Micah was told to proclaim were words of hope and promise. For those who would repent and return, a faithful remnant it turned out to be who would be a part of a future restoration. Let me give you an example of that part of the message. In Micah chapter 2 as well, we read, Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left, and I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. Love that. That's fantastic. That's part of the message too. Those are the two streams of Micah's message, judgment and the hope and promise of forgiveness, which brings us to our text. Because this hope, as we're going to discover, comes ultimately and fully with the coming of a ruler, a shepherd king, as I just read, who delivers and rescues. Let me read it. Take a look at it with me. Verse 2, chapter 5, and then I'll pray after I read through it. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength Of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let me pray. Join me in prayer. Father, uh, this word that you gave the prophet Micah almost 3,000 years ago is the same word that you give us today. Help me, I pray, to be faithful in proclaiming it like he was, and may we be like the faithful remnant who received it and were restored. Do that work today. In Jesus' name, amen. The name of this series, Christ Before Christmas, leads to the question, did this take place? Was this fulfilled? Micah chapter 5, those verses that I just read. Well, if you fast forward 700 years, Matthew records the following in Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?' For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem in Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. That prophet is Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And it's really important that we understand before we go any further that the true Israel, the the Israel of God, are not those who share the lineage of Abraham, but share the faith of Abraham. When we read about the Israel that this Messiah and Christ will lead, he's talking about the grafting together of the Jewish people and the Gentile people, creating not just a nation of people, but a nation made up of many nations and tribes and tongues. So when you hear that, hear that. That fulfillment that comes at the arrival of Christ And so what what does Matthew do? Matthew writes that Micah's prediction of the coming of Christ is fulfilled in Jesus. Again, 700 years later. Canada is 156 years old. 700 years after the prophecy of Micah, it was fulfilled in Christ. And so here's what I would like to do with the rest of our time this morning. I want to look at what Micah reveals about Christ Jesus, specifically in how he came. So, if you like taking notes, the first thing that Micah reveals about Jesus Christ and how he came is that Jesus comes humbly. Verse 2, first part of verse 2 But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem is the town, Ephrathah is the region. Bethlehem, however, is also King David. Remember King David, King David's birthplace. And Bethlehem is actually synonymous, so attached to David, synonymous with David. is actually called the city of David. It was in Bethlehem where Samuel anointed David to be king. And you can read that about that in 1 Samuel 16. And therefore it's not going so too far to say, although we're going to see this in other places, it's not going too far to say that for Jesus to come from David's hometown is to be from David. Bethlehem though, would become the birth, birthplace of the better David. But in spite of that heritage, and all of the renown that Bethlehem had because of its connection with David, it was also a nowhere town. Uh, it was like Cash Creek, okay? No offense to Cash Creek. But if I asked you to list out your top 10 cities in Canada, you probably wouldn't include Cash Creek in that list. Why? Well, because it's not, it's not Rome, not, it's not Vancouver, it's, it's Cash Creek, that's Bethlehem. So the question is, why would the coming Messiah be born in a nowhere town? Why would God orchestrate that? Well, the answer is to tell us something of who Christ was and who he had come for. He, he came humbly and he was born in the city of David. Again, he wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born in Jerusalem and Who was David? This is his city. Well, we always have in mind David the king. We have in mind David the one who killed Goliath. But who was he when we first met him? Well, before we become familiar with the David that we all remember, he was first, the last and perceived least significant son of Jesse, who wasn't even around when Jesse was first meeting the sons of Jesse, he was out tending sheep, which isn't a coincidence, by the way. But he finally comes before Jesse, he's brought in, and do you remember what the Lord said to Samuel? He said, no way, can't be him. And the Lord said to Samuel, when seeing this seemingly insignificant son was being chosen as the next king, famously said in 1 Samuel 16, seven, for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Who was David at this point? David was the youngest and smallest. He was the seemingly most insignificant son. And yet God chose him because God sees what we often don't. And that's the point. We're just to, to see this in the coming of Christ. Just be reminded of what Isaiah writes about the coming Christ in Isaiah 53.2. He writes, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. That's what drives me a little crazy about all the movies and shows about Jesus. Everybody who plays Jesus and all, that Beautiful. Studs, man. Here, no majesty. No form of majesty. Or majesty, I should say. No beauty that we should desire him. The humility of Jesus is wrapped up in what may be the greatest Advent text of them all, Philippians 2, where Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He gave up his rights as God by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But here's the thing about Jesus. To take it even further, Jesus wasn't just born in Bethlehem, this nowhere town. Jesus was born in Bethlehem that had no room for him. He was born in a barn. He was laid in a feeding trough and the message of his arrival was given to shepherds out in the fields at night. All of that means something. That picture means something. As an aside, by the way, I was talking to someone between gatherings and they were doing a study, had some, she came across some sort of study that talked about the economic situation of, of first century Palestine, Israel, places like Bethlehem. Bethlehem's chief resource where they made their money was raising sheep for Passover. That says something too. Second thing, Well, even before that, just to wrap up this point, Jesus came humbly for the humble. He came humbly for those who weren't righteous in their own eyes, but would pound their chest and cry out without being able to look up into the heavens, have mercy on me, a sinner. We see that in his coming. A second thing that we see see in his coming is that Jesus came as fulfillment. Take a look at the next part of verse two. From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now that phrase, from of old, of ancient days is not so much referring to the eternality of Jesus that he's everlasting to everlasting, the eternal Christ. But this here is focusing on God's faithfulness to keep his promise that was made even before this. As far back as Genesis 3, we have this promise of one who is coming. Now, as I was thinking about this part of the message this week, thinking, how do I I bring some sort of application? How does this supposed to hit home with us? Well, this is not the most earth shattering and profound statement, but it's worth saying, and it's important to remember that God keeps his word, that the coming of Jesus didn't just take place. It took place as a fulfillment of God's promises. Advent reminds us of that. But the promise of his coming, as we've tried to emphasize over the last couple of Sundays, is not a one-time event that was accomplished 2,000 years ago. His coming again is also promised. In fact, his second coming is made certain by the fact of his first. Revelation chapter 1, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Make it be, or may it be, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is why Christians shouldn't only celebrate Christmas, but that Christians should celebrate the advent, the, the coming of Christ. His first coming, for when we do, we remember His first coming while looking ahead to His second. Before moving on to the third thing that we see in the coming of Christ. And if we're doing CGs this week, I would certainly throw this out as a question for your groups to wrestle with. But as you go in, especially to this season, is there anything you are are believing or not believing right now about God that is not true of God? Are you taking him at, at his word? L- let Christmas remind you that God's word can be trusted and all of it, every dot, every curve on every letter will be fulfilled. Third, in what we're, what we're to see, Jesus came and comes adopted. Adopted. Let me explain this. If you've read the book of Matthew, you'll you'll know how the book of Matthew begins. The book of Matthew begins with a genealogy about Jesus. Genealogies are really just a coming together of a family tree and a passport. A good genealogy would open doors for you. The, The book, Matthew, begins this way regarding the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now I've already pointed out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the same place David was. But my question is, how is Jesus, the son of David? Well, the answer is through Joseph, Mary's Joseph. Joseph's lineage ran through David. That's why when the census took place, pregnant Mary, they had to travel to where? Bethlehem. And the reason why they had to travel to Bethlehem is because you had to register where you were born. You were, re- you were registered that way. And we read in Luke 2, 5, he, he had to register in Bethlehem because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. But of Jesus, Paul writes in Romans 1, concerning his son, speaking of Jesus, who was descended from David... According to the flesh. Now, stick with me. This is important. Now, I understand that Joseph was a descendant of David. But how was Jesus a descendant of David according to the flesh? I ask because Joseph wasn't his biological father. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. I referenced this before where the curse of the serpent comes and what does God do? He speaks to the woman. He doesn't even include Adam. And he says, through the woman, the enemy, your enemy is going to come. Enmity between you, you're going to strike his heel. He's going to crush your head. No mention of the man. So how? How, how is Jesus the son of David? Well, the answer is because he was adopted by his earthly father. I want you to marvel at this. I was 17 when I came to Jesus. I've been reading about Jesus, studying the gospels, reading as many books as I can over the last 40 years. But I continue to be amazed. At, at, at his love and, hear me, his willingness to identify with us. Jesus, just to be very clear, is the only begotten son of God the Father. Begotten simply means unique, one and only. But Midtown, like us, he's adopted too. He had to be us too, which is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Just listen to what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, fancy word, two-sided part of forgiveness, make propitiation for the sins of the people like us in every respect. Except one, without sin. And speaking of our adoption... Paul writes in Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So what? Put it all together. Jesus was a son of David through Joseph. And we are sons of God through Jesus. Amen, man. Predestined for adoption through Jesus, who was adopted. In other words, Jesus identifies with us so that we can find our identity with him and in him. Taste that this Christmas. Our sweet and precious Jesus. Third, fourth, Scared you. You know, like he's going backwards. Four, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus comes next at the proper time. Look at verse three. Therefore, he shall give them, up. very confusing verse. Don't run for the hills when I read it. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. That's a really important phrase right there. When she who is in labor has given birth. Okay. Not sure what that means. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. All right, really quick, because this can be confusing, so let me see if I can help. The nation, the people of God, have been evil and unjust. And God, through Micah, promises hope and promises joy if they return to him. But there will be a time where there will be refinement and, and discipline. He compares it here in verse 3 to a woman giving labor. Okay. That's their exile. First to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians. But when that time ends, what happens at the time of labor pains? A birth happens. And a birth does happen. It's a remnant. This new remnant of the people of God returning to Jerusalem and and restoring the temple. This here, just so we're clear, isn't talking about the birth of Jesus, but the return of that remnant. And yet, I do think it's kind of okay if you give me some grace to be reminded of the birth of Jesus. too, out of verse three because they have something in common. Both take place at the proper time. Their exile was like the birth pains until the time of the birth of a remnant and freedom thereafter. And what about Jesus? Well, Paul writes in Galatians four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption. There's the adoption language as sons, not sons and daughters here. Sons, firstborn sons, all the rights are ours. Men and women rights as a firstborn son, co-heirs with Christ, inheritance, ours, every single one of us through Christ, fullness of time. That phrase in the fullness of time, perfect time, not a second early, not a second late, perfect time. The birth of Jesus happened exactly when it was meant to happen. Who cares, Norm? That may be what you're thinking. Who cares? Why are you hammering this? Here's why. It's telling, isn't it, that Jesus likens the events preceding his second coming with birth pains. Labor pains, contractions kind of like what Micah does in our passage in verse 3. So the events, if we understand correctly what Jesus means, the events before his coming will get worse. Right, moms? Will get worse, and they'll happen more frequently. And Jesus says in what is known as the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, he says, don't be surprised. It has to be this way. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be surprised. Kingdoms coming against kingdoms, famines, earthquakes, false Christs, and false prophets. Lawlessness will be rampant. People will be lovers of self. Don't be surprised. And many will fall away. Many will fall away and betray one another, and hate one another, and the love of many for God and others will grow cold. And then Jesus says, the end will come. But not one second too early or one second too late. It will take place in the fullness of time. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. I don't say any of this to scare you. I say this to encourage you. His coming is certain. And the question that Jesus poses to all of us is, when he comes, will he find faith? Fifth, two more, very quick. Jesus comes as a shepherd. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus, as as you know, likens himself to many things in the Gospels, but one of the most well-known is he likens himself to a shepherd. And so with that in mind, I'll let Jesus, in his own words, describe what kind of shepherd he is. John chapter 10. for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's you and me, if you're in Christ. I must bring them also, and they they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have a authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. This is perhaps another reason why the message of his coming was declared to shepherds first. So Jesus comes humbly. He comes as fulfillment. He comes adopted. He comes at the proper time and he comes as shepherd and last Jesus comes to bring peace. Verse 5, and he shall be their peace. So he not only brings peace, he is peace. Speaking of the birth of Jesus, like Micah, hundreds of years before it happened, Isaiah, like I said, his colleague writes for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. On the night of his birth, the angels proclaim to the shepherd, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus came to bring peace. What kind of peace? Well, first and foremost, he came to bring peace between God and rebellious, sinful human beings. You see, Midtown, the message of the gospel is the exact same message that Micah gave. He came to reconcile rebellious people to God. Peace. Judgment on the one hand, invitation on the other. It's the same message. Will we be faithful in proclaiming it? While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that God's wrath would be turned away from us and we could have peace with God. The peace and forgiveness, that peace and forgiveness are available to anyone who trusts Jesus for salvation. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified through faith, not our lineage, not our church attendance, not our baptism, through faith, we have peace with God through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like an earthly leader. How does an earthly leader bring peace to their nation? Well, by conquering their enemies that come against us. And Jesus did that. He defeated sin and death, our greatest of enemies, through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death and his grave-emptying resurrection. But he also brings another kind of peace. He brings a peace... By sending the Holy Spirit to live in us believers, if, again, you're in Christ, the Spirit changes us so that we can gain a measure of inner peace. Peace, like joy was read today, peace is a fruit of the Spirit, a peace that goes beyond understanding, a peace that people will see in your life and go, I don't get it. How can you be at peace now? A peace that doesn't rest on circumstances, but in spite of them, Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Likewise, as believers are changed into more loving, more Christ-like people, they have the resources now, heart and mind resources, to to better live at peace with those around them. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Is that always possible? Is peace always attained? No, because sometimes when we walk with Jesus, it invites the sword and it invites division. But if it is possible, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone. But as I close, what about the peace on earth? With peace with God, peace in ourselves, peace with others, peace on Earth. Like that's what the angel said. Well, Jesus' first coming obviously did not bring international peace. All we got to do is turn our TVs on at night to see that's true. However, Jesus isn't only coming one time. He promised that he would come again. You see, the only way that there will ever be peace on earth is when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. And he assumes his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's, it's then that there will not only be peace on earth, there will be cosmic peace. Creation will finally be at peace with itself. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. His kingdom will come on earth like it is in heaven. Micah prophesies about this too, and I'll end with it and have it serve as a source of joy and encouragement as we look to Jesus coming again. This is what Micah writes in Micah 4. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees. For there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. This will be fulfilled. To which we should all cry out, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Would you rise as I pray and we go into a time of response, pretty please? Let me, let me pray and then I'll give you some direction for our time of response. So Father, we do cry out like John did when he ended the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Paul said he, he fought the good fight, he ran the race, there's a reward And there's a reward not just for him, there's a a reward for all of those who look forward to his coming, the coming of Christ. We do, we do. And if we don't, I pray that you would increase our desire. Perhaps it's a a demonstration that maybe we love this world more than you. Um, Maybe maybe we're, we're hoping there isn't a return because of the life we're living now. We're scared of it. So I pray whatever, whatever is going on, whether it's great encouragement today, or maybe there's some trepidation, I, I, I pray that you would do a work in us. Uh, take us even to even deeper levels in our encouragement and our, and our joy and our peace. Uh, or if we're on the opposite side, that we would come to you that we don't have to fear that if we are in Christ, we, we should long for the coming of Christ to look forward to the coming of Christ, because it will be better by far. We will miss nothing here. It will be better by far, but we don't want to be so heavenly focused as some people say that we do no earthly good. But the reality is it's those who have hope in something to come who do most earthly good. And you have given us a message, a message of hope, a message of hope. So use us, please. And increase our burden, increase our love. If our love has grown cold, I pray that you would birth something new in us. Whatever is remaining, fan into flame. Do that by way of your spirit in us for the glory, the glory of your name, for the good of this city, good of our families and friends. We love you. We love you desperately. We've never seen you, Jesus, but we love you with a love indescribable. And we thank you for the promise, the fulfillment coming when we will no longer look in a mirror dimly, but face to face. Face to face. We love you, we bless you, we worship you, and we pray all these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to MidtownChurch.com.